Appreciate everybody being here today. We do have some who are uh, guests with us this morning. We're glad you're here. I uh, hope we, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet you yet, that we will before you have to leave. If you're here thinking about uh, uh, finding a place to be a permanent member and a contributor to a local congregation, we sure would like for you to consider the church here. We believe we got a, a good thing going and a good uh, congregation here, and we'd like to have uh, you be a part of it. If you have questions or uh, that we might answer, I uh, just invite you to, to ask and spend some little time together. This morning, let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Appreciate everybody that's led us in worship today. It's been a really encouraging time together. As far as I'm concerned, I've been very encouraged by it. And appreciate the efforts that everybody has put forth in, um, in making the service uh, really good. We've been studying the book of Revelation in our auditorium class over the last couple of quarters. That's winding down now. We're toward the end of the book. But uh, not everybody is in that class, and so we'll take a minute to talk a little bit about the book in general, and then we'll focus in on our passage for the day. Revelation describes the conflict between Satan and God for our loyalty. And so Satan, or the dragon, or the serpent, he's trying to draw people away from God. He's trying to make them disloyal to him and loyal to, to him, Satan. And God, through Christ, is trying to make people loyal to him and uh, draw them through Christ to, to himself and to save them. If we follow Satan, or we follow the dragon, as he's described in the book of Revelation, we'll, we'll be lost. But if we follow the Lamb, well then, we'll be saved in the end. Satan has his agents that he works through in the world. In the book of Revelation, is a beast that came up out of the sea and a beast that came up out of the earth. And God has his agents through whom he works in the world, the Lamb, and it's a variety of angels and prophets and the saints who are encouraging loyalty to Christ and loyalty to the Lamb. And so the book is both an encouragement and a warning. It encourages us to be faithful to the Lamb, to, to follow Him, and it warns us that if we don't follow Him, if we're not loyal to Him, well then we'll suffer eternally in the end. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we have, we're introduced to three characters in one place. And we'll talk about those a little bit as we go through. And so we're going to read from Revelation chapter 14. We're going to read the first several verses there. And that'll be the text for our lesson today. Begins, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they've kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So we're introduced here. He mentions three characters. There is the Lamb, 
There's the 144,000, and then there is this voice that comes from heaven. And so a third character or a third group of people. And then there's one place mentioned specifically, it's Mount Zion. Well, we know pretty easily who some of these figures are. The Lamb, of course, is Christ. He's engaged in this battle for loyalty himself, and he's been faithful to God. He's persevered through trial, and he's won the victory. And so he's faithful. He's known as the faithful and true. It cost him his life, but he didn't yield. And so he's described in chapter 1 and verse 5 as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's our leader in the struggle. He's our leader in the battle. And so we look to him and follow him as we engage in this struggle ourselves. The 144,000 mentioned here, not to be taken literally as if there were only 144,000 who are going to heaven, not 139,999 or 144,001. It's not, not to be taken literally. But he simply is a number that represents the people of God, all the people of God, all of them. And so 12 is a number that represents the God's people. There are 12 apostles, there are 12 tribes of Israel. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And so the idea is all of God's people on the earth. And so the 144,000... We're actually introduced to them in chapter 7, and, and they're God's people on the earth. And so the Lamb is with, uh, is with His people on the earth, and they're in Mount Zion. Well, Mount Zion originally was David's fort. That's where his fortress was. That's where his stronghold was. And so the idea is, as God's people engage in this warfare, engage in this battle, in this struggle, the Lamb is with them. And he's protecting them. He's guarding them. Now they may suffer physically at the hands of the enemy, but spiritually they are preserved and they are protected. And then we're introduced to a voice from heaven. Now in Romans, uh, Revelation 7, we have the 144,000, a passage that describes them, and then that transitions to this great multitude in heaven. And so perhaps this voice is from that great multitude in heaven. They fought the battle, and now they've transitioned from earth into heaven where they're rejoicing in the presence of God. And they sing a new song, verse 3 says, Before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, no one could learn the song except the 144,000. So the people on the earth, they can learn this song and sing it, of course, in the presence of God. What does it take to become a member of that great multitude in heaven? Well, what does it take to become that, to become one of those, to, to participate in that number? Well, this passage describes what it takes. And that's what we want to spend the balance of our time talking about this morning. We're going to talk about three things. First of all, they have been purchased from among men. You can see that right at the end of verse 4 there. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And so these are people that have been purchased by God to be His, to belong to Him. Some versions say redeemed. They've been redeemed by God. The idea of being redeemed is to be purchased, is to be bought. As an Old Testament background, 
For example, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 25, an Israelite might become very poor, might become indebted to an individual, and then sort of sell himself into slavery to that man. Well, if he accumulated enough money, or if some of his family accumulated enough money, they could redeem him. They could buy his freedom. In redemption, an exchange is made. This for that. I'm going to give you this, and in return, you'll do this for me. And so a, a man would sell himself into slavery, but his family could redeem him, give the owner some money in exchange for the man's freedom. And so that's the idea of redemption. And uh, in the Old Testament, to begin with, every firstborn male would serve the Lord and uh, would uh, serve him in the temple or in the tabernacle and carry out that, you know, the, the work in connection with the temple and sacrifices and all of that. Every firstborn male. But, but eventually, God takes the Levites instead of the firstborn. But even after that, whenever the firstborn male was born, he had to be redeemed. And so instead of giving him to the Lord to work in the temple service or the tabernacle service, the family would pay money to the priest in exchange for the firstborn son. He, he would be redeemed. A person might have some property and uh, fall into debt or get behind in his bills or like what happens sometimes. And, and so he would sell his property to someone else, but he had the right for redemption for a period of time. He could, if he got enough money together, he could buy that back. Leviticus 25 and verse 25. And so that's the idea of redemption. A price is paid in exchange for something else. It's easy to see how this idea of redemption transitions to the idea of salvation. Here's a man who sells himself into slavery, and his family is going to save him from that situation by redeeming him. And the one who provides the price is the Redeemer. This passage says that we have been redeemed. We've been purchased by God. Someone has paid the price so that now we belong to Him. The Bible tells us in John chapter 8 and verse 34 that those who commit sin are bond servants or slaves to sin. And so we are servants of sin or slaves to sin. We're serving Satan. We're in bondage to him. And we can understand how that is, especially with some sins. They become very addictive, very habit-forming. We become slaves to the sin. But it's true of pride, it's true of jealousy, it's true of anger, it's true of all those things. We become slaves to them. And so how are we released? How are we set free from the bondage of sin? Well, Christ has paid the price. And of course, the price was His blood. A good passage to illustrate the point is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were redeemed not with gold or silver, not with money, but you were purchased by God with the blood of Christ. And so that was the price that had to be paid. In exchange for our release from sin, release from its guilt, release from its consequences, Christ offered His own blood. He paid for our freedom with His own blood. 
And so, who is among this great multitude? Those who have been redeemed. Those who have been purchased. They constitute, he says in this passage, the first fruits to God. And so, in the Old Testament, when somebody planted a field and at harvest time, the first fruits, the first and the best, went to the Lord, went, went to the, the priests who served the Lord. And so, these are the first fruits, the first. And the best of people have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They now belong to Him and constitute that great multitude who's praising God in heaven. And so how can we get into that number? You know, how, how can we be in that great multitude? Well, in the first place, we have to be redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now how do we contact the blood of Christ? That's, that, I guess, would be the, the next question to ask. Well, in Romans chapter 6, we are baptized into His death. That is, baptized into Christ's death. And so, we're baptized into His death. The blood of Christ is shed in His death. When we're baptized, the benefits of His death are applied to us. And our sins are washed away. Washed away by the blood of Christ. And, and so, we're redeemed. We're, we're purchased. We're bought. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, mentions this idea, uses this idea to appeal to us to live a certain way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be in that great multitude? First thing you need to do is contact the blood of Christ, which pays the price for your release. The second thing he says about this people is that they are blameless. You can see that at the end of verse 5. They are blameless. And he mentions two areas in which they are blameless specifically. First of all, he says, They have not defiled themselves with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Some versions will say virgins. Now, the Scriptures don't represent sexuality as if it were corrupt in itself or defiling. In fact, in the right context, it's altogether proper. So Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage is an honorable state. And he's specifically talking about the sexual union between a man and a woman takes place in marriage. And the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so he's not saying that only those who are not sexually experienced can go to heaven. It's not to be taken in that sense. <clears throat> what he is saying is that those who are pure and holy, <clears throat> those who have abstained from fleshly lusts that war against the soul, will be included in that number. Christians are to live morally pure and godly lives. Sexually pure, yes, but morally pure in all areas of their lives. A couple of passages. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Cleanse yourself of everything that defiles the flesh and the spirit. Everything that makes you impure, everything that defiles you, cleanse yourself, get it out, and perfect holiness. Live a holy and pure life. There's another passage in the book of Hebrews chapter 
12 and verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we're to live pure, holy lives. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 John 3 and verse 3, we're to be pure as he is pure. Sexually pure, yes, but morally pure and righteous and holy in all areas. And so we want to project, as God's people project, a pure and godly image in our word, in our conduct, in every aspect of life. You may know people who claim to be as claim to be Christians, but their speech is as it's it's just terrible. It's as corrupt and immoral, and you know it's it's vile. And so they claim to be Christians, but their speech is corrupt, or their behavior may be corrupt. You may you may know people that claim to be Christians but their behavior is impure and corrupt, or their attitude. And so what we want to do, what he's suggesting here, is be blameless in the area of morality and keep ourselves pure. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul spends sometimes contrasting the godly with the ungodly. Lay aside falsehood, he says, and speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. He who steals must steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his own hands what is good. Let no unwholesome speech proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. And he goes on and talks about that, makes that contrast some more. And so, who's going to be in that great multitude in heaven before the throne singing the new song? Those who are blameless, those who have kept themselves pure. But he mentions another specific thing here. No lie was found in their mouths. It may be that in this particular context, in the context of Revelation, John has in mind the lie that Caesar is Lord. And all Roman citizens were to claim their allegiance and pledge their allegiance to the Caesar. Caesar, now that's a lie, isn't it? (laughs) In the book of Revelation, that might be the lie that's primarily the focus here. No lie was found in their mouth. But we know that Christians are to avoid lying in, in every form. We just read from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one with, with his neighbor. You ever, you ever been impressed with how many times during a day you have the opportunity to lie? <laughs> oh, it's... It, it's The number is very high. There are lots of different ways a person can lie. He can lie by just simply stating what is false. He knows what is false. He knows what's true, what's false. And he's trying to mislead the person he's talking to by telling them what's false. That's a a lie, isn't it? He may tell only part of the truth. And in telling part of the truth, intend to mislead the person he's talking to. That's, That's really the key element the intent to mislead the person that we're talking to. And so we know that if I told the whole truth, well then the person would get an impression that I don't want them to get. And so what I'm going to say is true, but I'm going to leave out some critical information. Well, that's, that's deception, isn't it? It's a lie. What we say can be technically true, but we can tell it in a way that deceives, that misleads, and that's our intent. And so there are lots of different ways we can lie. If we intend to mislead, if we intend to deceive, we're guilty. 
Our reliability is at stake. If we're known to misrepresent the facts to our own advantage, people will doubt our integrity. We can't trust Bob. You can't believe a word he says. He's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a liar. He's a habitual liar. And so when I go and I try to teach them the gospel, what's the reaction going to be? And so we want to be people of integrity. We want to be people that are reliable in what we say. We want to be a people of integrity so that when we represent the gospel, when we teach people the gospel, they can have confidence that we're telling them the truth. We want to be a member of that great multitude in heaven. We need to be blameless. You need to keep yourself pure and holy. You need to be a person of integrity. No lie found in your mouth. And then there's one other point that we'll make from this. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's think about that. So to be part of this great multitude, we need to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now the Lamb, of course, is Christ. And what does John mean here when he says, follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Well, look at the life of Christ and see where He went, so to speak, and, and follow Him. And notice he says, follow Him wherever He goes. Now there are people, I think, who will follow Christ some of the places where He goes, but they don't follow Him everywhere He goes or wherever He goes. So let's think about that a little bit. In Matthew chapter 3, we find that Jesus went to the Jordan to be baptized. Now, He's baptized for a different reason than people are baptized today. Today, people are baptized for the remission of their sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In Acts 22 verse 16, people are baptized to wash away their sins. We're baptized into the body of Christ, Galatians 3 verse 27. Jesus had no sin to be washed away or to be forgiven of. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says His baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. It's the right thing for Him to do. Jesus is a human being and God expects human beings, He expects men to be baptized, to submit, to humble themselves, and to be baptized. And Jesus identifies with us, humbles Himself and identifies with us and submits to that command as He does the will of the Father. And so that's what we want to do. We want to follow His example to at least that degree. Now He was sinless, we're not. We're baptized to uh, obtain the remission of our sins. He wasn't baptized for that reason. But He did humble Himself and submitted to being baptized. Well, we need to do that. Will you follow Him wherever He goes? Will you follow Jesus to the Jordan? <laughs> I don't mean literally go to the Jordan, of course, but will you follow Him in submitting to the command to be baptized? Now, these people follow Him wherever He goes. Will you follow Him to the Jordan? Will you follow Him in being baptized? In your case, in our case, for the remission of our sins. In Matthew chapter 4, and verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was tempted there three ways. First of all, he was hungry, been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And so the devil says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. And Jesus resisted that, resisted that temptation. Though he was hungry, yielding to, the, to Satan was not the way to satisfy his hunger. And so he resisted that temptation. The devil takes him to the highest point of the temple and he challenges him. 
If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, He'll command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up so that you'll not strike your foot against the stone. And so test God. Put Him to the test. See if He's true to His Word. And Jesus responds by resisting the temptation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then verse 8 took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan says to him, I'll give you all of these things if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus resists. He resists every time, quotes scripture every time. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He is tempted by Satan. He's tempted in all points as we are. He's tempted by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the vain glory of life or the pride of life. When the Satan challenged his special relationship with God, Christ didn't say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll show you. You know, he doesn't yield to the temptation. He resists every time. He doesn't get caught up in the moment, in the emotion of the moment. He was prepared for temptation, and he resisted. Well, we follow Jesus in the wilderness, and we're going to be tempted. We'll, we'll be tempted. We, we know that from personal experience. Every one of us will be tempted. Are we going to get caught up in the moment? Are we going to get caught unprepared for temptation and yield to it? Or will we follow Jesus? Have the strength of character. Have the, the, the will. Have the determination and self-control necessary to resist. Are we going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes or not? Later on in Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus is going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus went through the regions of Galilee preaching the gospel. In fact, He went more places than that. We know He went down into Judea and Jerusalem, and He taught a, healed a blind man there and taught Him. He taught others in Jerusalem. Uh, he went uh, to Tyre and Sidon, and there encountered... Uh, the woman who said, you know, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fell, fall from the master's table. That's, that's in Tyre and Sidon. That's over there on the coast. It's not in Galilee. That's, that's a, geographically a different place. He also went over into the Decapolis, Mark chapter 5. And, and that's over on the east side of the Jordan. And of course he's going to all these places teaching the gospel. Jesus' disciples do likewise. Peter and Stephen and Philip and Paul, all the disciples, Acts, 4 verse, Acts 8 verse 4 says, when everywhere preaching the Word. We're going to follow Jesus as He goes about teaching, taking the gospel to those who need to hear it. I don't mean we have to leave our homes and make our living by the gospel. Some people do that, but not everyone. But we can all teach. We can all plant the seed in those who need to hear it. We can start with our family. We can start with our children, our family members, and our friends, and people that we work with or go to school with. And the people that are going to be in the great multitude follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Will we follow Him in our teaching? In John chapter 13, we find Jesus in the upper room before the night before He's betrayed and then crucified. And remember that occasion? He stoops down and He washes the disciples' feet. And so here we have the Son of God washing, humbling Himself and washing their feet, humbling, humbly serving others. He says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should do as I have done to you. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. Well, we follow Jesus in serving others. Jesus served others. His whole life was spent in service to others. Well, we do that. Well, we follow the Lamb wherever He goes and spend our effort and our life and our opportunities serving others. Now, you don't need to form a charitable organization to serve others. There are many ways that we can serve individual to individual. And I'm going to use a, a couple examples from, <laughs> from the congregation, congregation here, just people who, who serve others. Think about Frank Sledge. How many of us have gone to Frank and said things like, Frank, I got a plumbing problem. Can you recommend somebody? <laughs> Frank, I got an electrical problem. Can you recommend somebody? Frank, I want an addition to the house. Can you help me? Just, yeah, I can do that. Just using his, his resources, his knowledge, his experience to serve others. How many of us have appealed to some of the medical people here? We have several here. It says, oh, I've got a problem. Can you, can you, can you tell me a little bit about it? Or I've got this medical procedure coming up I'm going to have to take care of. Can you recommend someone? And just using their position in life to serve people. I may have gone to Kevin and said, Kevin, i got a legal situation I'm going to have to get involved in. Can you give me some guidance? All of those are, are service, aren't they? Services. And, and you know, nobody's formed a charitable organization, but using their opportunity and their place in life to help others to serve others. There are many ways for us to serve others. We can choose a career path that serves. I say sometimes think small. And so the person who gives a cup of cold water in his name will not lose his reward. Mark chapter 9 and verse 41. Will we, will we follow Christ into the upper room? And then finally, will we follow Christ to the cross? This may be the immediate point John makes in Revelation. Following the Lamb wherever He goes means following Him to death. Now some have already died. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. We have, see the souls of those who have been slain for the Word of God underneath the altar. We read about Antipas in chapter 2 and verse 13. A, a faithful servant who had given his life for the cause. And through the years many have given their lives... That's not necessarily our challenge. We're not challenged. We're not forced to give up our lives, physically, literally speaking, for Christ. Now, some people in the world may be, but, but that's not our challenge. We are, however, told to take up our cross and follow Him. We need to humble ourselves, deny selfish interest, be willing to sacrifice and be obedient, willing to suffer. Someone might say, well, I'll follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me anything. No, no, that's not enough, is it? That's not following the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus went to the cross, gave His life. And so are we willing to follow Him wherever He goes? Are we willing to follow Him to the cross? As we said earlier, some follow Jesus some places where He goes, but not every place He goes. If we're going to be part of that great multitude... We have to follow Him wherever He goes. And so here are three characteristics of that great multitude. They've been purchased by God. We need to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are blameless. They live pure and holy lives of integrity. And they follow Him wherever He goes. And so as we transition from the Lord's Day 
to tomorrow, the, the work week. Maybe we can take some of these thoughts with us, and it'll help us in our struggle, in our battle against the evil one. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful once again for the opportunity to meet together and to worship you. And Father, we pray that the things we've done today are, are pleasing to you. That's our primary goal today. That's what we want to achieve, is to honor you and bring glory to you and do things that please you. We're thankful that we have your word, that we can open it up, we can read it and understand it and be instructed by it and encouraged by it, to be the kind of people that you're pleased with to be the kind of people that have a legitimate hope of eternal life, of being part of that great multitude in heaven. Father, help us take these things that we've talked about today from your word and apply them to our lives in the coming days throughout, throughout this week. Father, we pray that if there are those here this morning who have never been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that they'll, they'll make that decision to, to do that. Help us to live blameless lives, lives that are pure and clean and lives of integrity. And help us, Father, to follow Christ, to follow Him wherever He goes, whether it's uh, through uh, joy or pain, because we know that in following Him, we will leave this earth with its, with its pain and sorrow, and we will be where He is in glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're subject to the invitation...